ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I invite you to please open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Specifically, we're looking at verses 22 to 24 in Ephesians 5. And so we're beginning to look at the, the, the final section here in Ephesians 5 where, in which Paul addresses you know, the topic of marriage. He addresses wives and then husbands. And uh, today is only the beginning, so we're looking at Paul's instruction for wives. And, and, and I realize I continue to keep making... Um, you know, errors in my, in my math and things looking out. I think last Sunday I told you that for the next two weeks we would be spending, we'd spend the next two weeks looking at this passage, but I totally forgot that next week is Missions Weekend. I'm not preaching. Dr. Carl Truman will be preaching. And so we're looking at Paul's instructions to wives today, and then we'll come back uh, in a couple of weeks and we'll look at Paul's instructions for husbands which is about three times as long as his instruction for wives. To which the wives say, amen, and of course it is, because the husbands need more instruction and direction. And as, as a husband of nearly 20 years, I, I have no rebuttal to that. But the point being is that we're going to be back in this passage in a couple of weeks, the first Sunday in May. So today's not all we're going to say about marriage. And our text today is, is verses 22 to 24, but I'm going to read from verse 22 all the way to the end of the chapter today, as well as in a couple of weeks when we're back in this passage. And so here now, God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word, I'll begin reading in Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true, and it's given to us in love for our good. Now, ordinarily, I'll jump right into uh, the text right now. I would give you the outline, you know, two or three, four or five points, and I would jump right in. However, before we get into verses 22 to 24, there is actually much I want to say to, to frame this sermon um, on Paul's instructions to wives. First, remember that this, this is not a, a topical sermon series. And this is not a topical sermon. You know, I'm preaching an expository series through uh, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. 
and I'm going to attempt to preach an expository sermon on this text, verses 22 to 24. And so I'm not even attempting to say all that could be said or even should be said on the topic of marriage or even on a wife's role within a marriage. Right? But I'm preaching through Ephesians. Therefore, my obligation to you is to preach the text, to attempt the best I can to explain to you what it means, and then to apply it to our lives with some level of pastoral wisdom and care as I depend on the Holy Spirit to move and work through God's Word in the hearts of God's people. Second, we'll do well not to forget that Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33, this marriage passage is not given to us separate and apart from Paul's whole letter to the Ephesians. You know, I have to admit that, that there have been times in in my Christian life where I've been guilty of, of thinking of this section, this passage, almost as if it's like a separate attachment to the email. You know, there's Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and there's a separate attachment that has this, this section on, on marriage and Paul's instructions to wives and to husbands. But we would do well to remember the context, the context of Paul's letter to the Ephesians, to remember what came before this passage on marriage. To remember that in Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul set out for us wonderfully, beautifully, and in depth the riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ for those of us who are in Christ. And then when we turn the page to the second half of this letter, we entered into chapters 4, 5, and 6, that Paul's instructing us on the practical applications and implications which flow out of the grace of God in Christ for us. And those applications and implications which flow out of God's grace for us in Christ continue into Ephesians 5, continue into our text, continue into this text directed to wives and husbands. So we must not forget that Paul's teaching and instruction on marriage is rooted in this wider teaching of the amazing grace of God for sinners like us in Christ. Now third, it's important that we not only remember the overall kind of overarching message of Ephesians, but we should also remember what Paul said in the section that immediately came before this section. We covered it last Sunday. So if you were here, then you may remember that, that Paul instructed all Christians to not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And we talked about what that meant, that it means to, to be directed by God's word, right? As Colossians 3 puts it, as we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, to be filled with the Spirit, to be, to be directed by God's word, to be moved along in our Christian life by the Holy Spirit. That is, to have the Holy Spirit so permeate and impact our lives that everything we think, everything we say, everything we do is a material consequence of the Holy Spirit's work and influence and direction and control as the word of Christ dwells in us richly and as we participate in our union with Christ. And you may remember that the marks of such a, a spirit-filled Christian, as we saw last week, are heartfelt worship to God as we address and exhort and encourage and spur one another on to love and good deeds. Another mark is, is a heart and life marked by gratitude and thanksgiving always and for everything to the God, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then also a mark of the Spirit-filled Christian that we saw last week is a life of mutual submission 
mutual service to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, after that, after this teaching on being filled with the Spirit, Paul goes straight into the topic of marriage. He's going to address wives. He's going to address husbands. Then he's going to go into the topic of parenting. He's going to address children and address parents. Then he's going to go into the, to, to the, to the arena of, of commerce in the workplace, and he's going to address servants, and he's going to address masters. And then once Paul has addressed wives and husbands, children and parents, servants and masters, you know what Paul says? See, all of that takes us through um, Ephesians 6, verse 9. After Paul goes through the topic of marriage, parenting, and the workplace, we come to Ephesians 6, verses 10 and 11. Here's what we read. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Okay, so I want you to think about this. In between Paul's teaching about the spirit-filled life of a growing and maturing Christian and his teaching about spiritual warfare and putting on the whole armor of God, what do we find in the middle? His teaching on marriage and on parenting and on workplace relationships. So do you understand what this means? You know, the, the Christian life, the, the spirit-filled Christian life, it, it's, it's not lived out in a vacuum. But it's lived out in, in the real world where we really live day after day after day. It's lived out on, on a Wednesday afternoon at 3.30. Right? The spirit-filled Christian life is to be lived out in our marriages, in our families, in the workplace. Not merely privately and, and not in some private spiritual experiences, but in how we live with and relate to and serve those around us, those we live with. And, and the battleground for spiritual warfare is, is not in some distant place. It's it's in our homes. It's in our marriages. It's in the workplace. You see, brothers and sisters, our sanctification, our spiritual maturity is seen and measured in how we live in our marriages, in our homes, in our ordinary, everyday, often mundane interactions and exchanges and opportunities that we have with those we live with and those we work with. Therefore, as it pertains to our passage today, it matters how we treat our spouses. See, we're, we're never ever more mature, never more holy, never more godly, never more sanctified than the maturity and sanctification that we live out in our marriages and in our homes. It matters how we relate to and how we treat our spouses. Now, please don't think that your marriage can be all you desire for it to be, while at the same time, you ignore God's clear teaching on marriage. And it is a pretty clear teaching on marriage. Now, I didn't say it was easy, okay? I believe it was Alistair Begg who said that, that a good marriage is like a golf swing. Now, I'm not a golfer, but I think I understand the analogy. He says that a good marriage is like a golf swing. It's not easy, but it is straightforward, and in many ways, this passage today, even though I know it is challenging 
to our modern minds, it is quite straightforward. So we're going to be learning about marriage. I just want to ask you, we're almost ready to dive into the text, but first I want you to think about where, where is your heart this morning? Especially if, if, if you knew coming into the day that, assuming I stayed on schedule, which I don't always do, but if, assuming I did, that we would be talking about marriage today, where's your heart this morning? My guess is in a room this size that, that we're all over the place. Some are probably excited to see, okay, what are we going to hear about marriage? Maybe it's those who are soon to be engaged or those who are engaged and soon to be married. Maybe those who are newly married. Maybe even those who have been blessed with a very happy and healthy marriage for years or even decades. But I also assume that there are those who maybe you, you were not sure that you were even going to come this morning because the topic of marriage is one of great sadness to you. Whether that's because of a longing to be married or whether that's because of the, the loss of a spouse, or whether that's because of the pain and the wounds of a very difficult marriage. Now, if you're here this morning and you're in a difficult marriage, and or perhaps you're beginning to lose hope regarding your marriage getting better and getting healthier and getting stronger, then I'm so glad that you came this morning. And to help frame this text, I want to read what's a bit of a longer quote to you this morning from a book titled Gospel-Shaped Marriage by Chad and Emily Van Dixhorde. A number of, uh, one of our Sunday school classes has been reading it and discussing it this semester. And so here's this quote. It's a little bit longer, but I think it's helpful. It says, when Christians are hopeless, we are forgetting that we are no longer in the garden after our first parent's sin and before the giving of the gospel. We're not stuck in the moments or hours before God promised to crush the serpent. No, we are living on the other side, or I would even say on this side, of God's promise to send a seed of Adam to be our Savior. We are even living on the other side, or I would say on this side of the cross, on this side of the empty tomb, of the disciples looking with wonder up into heaven and looking to Christ in faith. We are living in the age of the Spirit whose enabling power gives grace to sinners who long to love others as, Christ, as Christian saints should. Perhaps you know of someone whose marriage isn't that great. Maybe you yourself are all too aware that your spouse is a sinner and you feel stuck. You may feel let down or even betrayed. Your marriage is not all you expected it would be. Well, redemptive history, and by that it's talking about the saving work of Christ for sinners like us. Redemptive history has something to teach us. For those who know Christ... Marriages really can get better, both bad marriages and even the good ones. And that's how I hope we'll enter this scripture passage with gospel hope. And also, I want to say this, that I don't know if you realize this or not, but the only other topic that's more humbling for pastors to preach on than marriage is, is parenting, which I'll be doing pretty soon as well. And the reason why is because, because we know, I know my own sin. And my own shortcomings. My wife and kids, right over there, you can go talk to them afterwards. But praise God that for those who know Christ, we're not without hope. We never are. That marriages can really get better, both bad marriages and even the good ones. Okay, so we're going to ask and answer three questions today. This is our outline. What are spirit-filled wives called to do? Why are wives called to do it? 
Okay, and what's the character and scope of this calling? What are they called to do? Why? What's the character and scope of it? So what are wives called to do? Look at me at verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as the Lord. It's straightforward. It's not easy, but it is straightforward. And yet, as you look at this, realize that this instruction for wives cannot and must not be separated by Paul's instruction to husbands. So our text is 22, 23, and 24, but I want us to go ahead and look at 25 because we shouldn't separate 22 and 25 completely. In verse 25, we read, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So you see, the, the wife's call to submission to her husband can never be, never is, rightfully understood apart from the express obligation of the husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. In fact, each of these verses today, 22, 23, and 24, is going to mention, it's going to mention Christ. You see, as Professor uh, Marcus Menninger puts it, you cannot rightly understand either the nature of marriage or how to conduct yourself in it apart from Christ and Christ-likeness. Wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Husbands should love, nourish, cherish their wives. Why? Because what God first created in the garden was designed that way, to speak about and show forth the riches of the Christ who would come and has now come as the head of his body, the church. So looking at verse 22, not separated from the whole section, we're reminded of this connection to Christ and this connection to husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church. Look at verse 22, and I have to say this, that if, if you bristle at verse 22, know, know that there's really no denying that this really is the clear and unified teaching of the Bible. Okay, the Apostle Paul says the same thing in Colossians 3. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 3. See, there's no getting around the biblical call for wives to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. So, so either we believe that the Bible is God's word, that it's authoritative, that it's sufficient, that it's absolutely true, given to us in love for our good, or we don't. And if we believe it is the word of God, the God-breathed word, then we must receive it all. And resist any temptation, any urge to pick and choose which places we'll keep and which places we'll leave according to our own preferences. Okay, so looking at verse 22, it's straightforward. What needs explanation is what do we mean by the word submit? So I want us to think about what submission is and what submission is not. The word translated submit means to arrange oneself under. Or, or, or to place oneself under, to, to line, oneself, line up under. But remember, before Paul tells wives to submit to their own husbands, what he said in the previous section was, be filled with the Spirit. And one of the marks of being filled with the Spirit was what? Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, don't forget that. The, the maturing, growing, Spirit-filled Christian, whether a wife or a husband, a single person, young, old, whomever, they are to know that life is not about them and about them being served by others. Rather, the, Christian, the, whole, the spirit-filled Christian life is about serving others, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. 
Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 20, verses 27 and 28. Whoever will be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, submitting to one another and serving one another, yes, it can be one of the hardest things that God's Word calls us to do, but we do it out of reverence for Christ. That we're called to do it remembering and being motivated by how Christ first loved us, how he first served us, and how he, how he gave his life for us to save us. I mean, do you know that, that I've read a study that says that Paul talks about the Christian duty of mutual submission, mutual servanthood, Christians out serving one another more than he talks about the doctrine of justification by faith. Paul mentions this principle of mutual submission, mutual servanthood, Christians seeking to outdo one another in service of one another 32 times in his letters. You see, the premise and basis for the roles of husbands and wives that Paul and that Peter lay out in their letters is that followers of Jesus are people who have been supernaturally transformed by the Holy Spirit into new creations with new hearts enabled to walk in newness of life. Therefore, followers of Christ can let go of our own agendas. Just turn them loose. We don't have to demand that we get our way. That we can live in submission to others for our good and for the good of others. That we can humbly serve others rather than insisting that we be served. You know, Jesus gave his disciples a very clear picture of this just before he was arrested in Gethsemane, whenever he washed their feet in John 13. John 13, verses 12 to 14 says, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. Okay, so you understand what this means? Before we dive into Paul's instruction for wives, Christians willingly volunteer to submit to and serve one another. It's one of the most distinctly Christ-like things any Christian can do. Any Christian. So as John Calvin puts it, where love reigns, and in a marriage love ought to reign, where love reigns, there is mutual servanthood. Husbands loving their wives through their sacrificial leadership through bearing the burden, and we'll talk more about that, but bearing the burden of leadership and wives loving their husbands through willing submission and respect. You see, Christians never ever think that submission is beneath them. And Christians are to understand that positions of leadership are to be used to serve others, not to serve ourselves. Therefore, Christian wives should never ever think that submission to their own husbands is beneath them. See, husbands and wives have different roles given by God, but both roles are for the purpose of the glory of Christ, but also of outserving one another. We'll keep coming back to this principle as we work our way through Ephesians 5. So, what does it mean when Paul calls wives to submit to their own husbands? I like the way Ligon Duncan phrases it. He says, Submission refers to a wife's divine calling to honor and affirm her husband's leadership, and help carry it through according to her gifts. She is to be a suitable helper for her husband. 
a helper fit for him. It is not an absolute surrender of her will. Rather, we speak of her disposition to yield to her husband's guidance and her inclination to follow his leadership. And don't miss this. A wife's submission to her husband is to be always freely given, never forcibly taken. So when you look at verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I think it's important to also say what submission is not. It's not a call for every woman to submit to every man. It's a call for a wife to freely and willingly submit to her own husband. It's not a call for a wife to blindly follow her husband no matter what, as if he's sort of absolute authority. Okay, he's not. It's not permission for a husband to be a tyrant or to think he's now king of the castle, shouting out demands and commands. And, in fact, godly and wise wives should not always give in to every demand of their husbands, sometimes for his own good. Right? You don't follow your husband into sin. That, that sometimes we have to say, like the apostles in, in Acts 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. And when we're trying to understand what submission is not, ladies, you must never, ever allow your husband to abuse you. Not physically, not verbally, not emotionally. You need to get help. You need to tell, tell someone, tell me, tell one of our pastors, tell one of our elders. Tell someone, never allow anyone to abuse you. The call to submission is not a call to excuse abuse. It's also not a call to give up your independent thought. But ladies, it's not a call for you to shut off your mind and, and let your husbands think for you. Right? As we read in Genesis 2, it's not good for the man to be alone. He, he needs your help. Husbands, you need your wife's help. You need her opinion and her input and her instincts and her wisdom and her experience. See, submission is not a call for a wife to be a doormat. In fact, Paul addresses wives specifically in our passage, which would not have been done in the first century because women, children, servants were, were not even considered to have the ability to think through matters for themselves. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says that wives are image bearers of God with value and worth and dignity, adopted children of God. And therefore, Paul says, I, wives, I want you to consider these instructions that you are to submit to your own husband as to the Lord. See, submission does not mean that a wife is wrong to try and influence and guide her husband. If you look at the first Peter 3 passage, which we don't have time to do, it's clear that Peter wants wives to influence their husbands in a godly, honoring, respectful way. You know, Alicia and I, we've been married, I, I, I do this here because she's right over there. Alicia and I have been married for almost 20 years, 20 years this summer. And you know, I can't, there's so many examples of ways that Alicia has influenced, guided, persuaded me in so many major life decisions for our family. Major life decisions. I mean, we, we wouldn't be here in Houston without her persuading and guiding and influencing me. Major life purchases. And she did all of it while respecting and submitting to my role as the head of the family. Now, I've not always done what she wanted me to do. She'll also tell you about that. But, but her wisdom and her insight, her courage, her willingness to step out in faith, whenever I was much more hesitant, has saved me from numerous bad decisions over the past 20 years. Professor Dan Doriani says, a wife can exercise considerable authority in the home 
and yet be submissive to her husband if she manages their money, property, and time in the ways they've worked out together. You see, submission is not based on a woman having less intelligence or less competence or less leadership ability or less dignity or worth or even spiritual maturity. Again, in 1 Peter 3, Peter even assumes that some wives will be much more spiritually mature than their husbands. So when you look at verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, you pay attention to that final phrase, as to the Lord. The motivation for a godly, spirit-filled Christian wife to submit to her own husband is that it's part of her obedience to Christ. Her Lord, who is absolutely good, her Lord Jesus Christ, who is all-wise, her Lord Jesus Christ, who loves her dearly, has given her a husband. And Christ tells her to submit to him, therefore she is to do it for her good. As Pastor Richard Phillips puts it, wives are to submit to their husbands not because they're worthy of obedience, but because Jesus is. Wives submit to their husbands as part of their living worship to Christ. This is in the context of living as a spirit-filled Christian. Remember that. The second question, okay, why are wives called to do this? Well, look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, again, this is not easy, but it is straightforward. I mean, this verse means what, what you think it means. You know, as one pastor put it, as the leadership of the church is in the hands of Christ, so is the burden of leadership, and that's the right phrase, the burden of leadership of the marriage in the hands of the husband. You see, God has graciously and sovereignly decided that the husband is to bear the burden of leadership and responsibility for his bride and for their family. You know, there's one study I looked at that, that, that studied every occurrence of the Greek word kephale, which is translated head in verse 23, um, and, and, and it looked at everything, in, every occurrence in the Bible and outside in, in ancient Greek, and there were over 2,300 occurrences, and each and every one meant in some form or fashion leadership the burden of responsibility the burden of authority and so you look at verse 23 the comparison is between the husband as the head of the wife to christ as the head of the church his body of which he is the savior so what did christ as our head do for us he suffered for us he bled for us. He died for us to save us. So do you understand what this headship means? If the husband is to be the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church, then his headship is to be marked by love and sacrifice and care and responsibility. Just as Christ's headship of the church is, is a grace and a blessing to the church, a godly husband's headship marked by love and sacrifice and care and responsibility is a gracious blessing to his bride. And therefore, her submission to a godly and loving husband is a gracious blessing as well. You see, a husband's headship in marriage does not mean that the husband gets to order his wife around like a king in the castle, like a tyrant. It doesn't mean he gets, always gets his way. It doesn't mean he gets to micromanage every one of his wife's decisions. But it also doesn't mean 
doesn't allow for the husband to drift into passivity. To allow the very best of his thoughts and creativity and initiative and energy to be given towards everything else but her and the family. To give into his job and his friends and his hobbies. And with very little or nothing left over for her and for the family. No, the husband is to love his wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. As theologian John Stott put it, the wife's submission is to be given to a lover, not an ogre. Be given to a lover, not an ogre, and not a big child who refuses to grow up. Now, you may be asking two questions. Okay, well, why does my marriage need a head, and why should it be the man? Good question. I'm glad you asked. Okay, why does my marriage need a head? Why can't there be equality? There is equality. There's just a distinction in roles that's necessary, and that's clearly laid out in Scripture. There is equality. Think about what we read in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, first off, notice this. This verse is a straightforward rebuke of the foolishness and the insanity, the insanity of gender fluidity. And the wickedness and the evilness of transgenderism in our culture today. So don't miss that. But I also want you to notice what it says about the dignity and worth of men and women. Both created in the image of God. That there is equality, there's a distinction in roles. I love the way that the Bible commentator Matthew Henry puts it. He puts it in a beautiful way. The woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. And yet every marriage needs and will have a head. See, there's no such thing as a roleless marriage. I mean, it's simple logic. I mean, how do you break a tie when a husband votes for A and the wife votes for B. How do you do it? If we ignore what the Bible teaches about distinct roles in marriage, how do you do that? I mean, do you flip a coin? Do you arm wrestle? You know, do you race? Do, do you debate? You know, do, you, do you take turns? I mean, how long will that, who, who will keep up with that? I mean, think about it. I mean, seriously, think about it. I mean, how, if husband votes for A, wife votes for B, if you're going to reject what the Bible teaches about headship, how do you, how do you, how do you decide? You may say, well, Richard, you know what we're going to do? We're going, we, will, we, will, we pray about it. Okay, well, you should pray about it. After you pray about it and you come back, what if he still wants A and you still want B? What do you do? Well, we'll pray about it some more. Okay, well, that's good. You ought to pray about it some more. What, but what if you come back and he still wants A and, and, and she still wants B? Well, maybe we'll fast. Okay, well, that's a good idea too, okay? So, okay, you come back, he still won't say, he won't be. Okay, we're going to talk to someone, okay? What happens after you talk to someone and he still won't say, and you still won't be? There's no such thing as a roleless marriage, that someone must be the head. And the Bible is clear, unmistakably so. Okay, well, why should it be the man? Well, again, theologian John Stott says, this is not chauvinism, it's creationism. That Eve was created to be Adam's helper. 
not his leader, to be his complement, not his competitor. See, men are not necessarily smarter, better, more responsible, highly qualified, more spiritual, or any way deserving. However, someone has to assume the burden of headship, and God has clearly and graciously placed the burden on every husband. And husbands cannot, must not shirk their responsibility, which we're going to keep talking about in the weeks to come. And wives should not resent their husband's calling to serve their marriage and their family as they bear the burden of leadership and the immense responsibility of leadership in the family. Make no mistake, it is an immense responsibility. Immensely so. (laughs) There's so many times where I wish... I wish I didn't have to bear that burden. Because I know, I know enough of God's word that, you know what, my, my calling, the burden I have, is to not make decisions that Alicia will be happy with today. That's, that's easy to do. Honey, what do you want to do? What's hard is to make decisions knowing my own sinfulness, my own fallibility, and my own limitations that she'll be happy with 20 years from now. That's the burden of leadership. Kent Hughes puts it this way, headship is a fearful thing. When a husband makes difficult decisions, he should do so with the full counsel of his wife. It'd be foolish not to do so. It's not good for man to be alone. You need a helper fit for you. And he should do so with great humility and dependence on the Lord, realizing his fallibility and responsibility. The last question, bear with me. What is the character and scope of a wife's submission to her husband? Look at verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Now, I've already, we've already talked about this. This is not a call to blindly follow your husband. That sometimes you have, to, you have to push back, you have to resist, you have to say, I have to follow God rather than man. Should not follow your husband to sin. But looking at verse 24... Notice that wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. How does the church submit to Christ? Well, we submit to Christ out of love for him who first loved us and gave himself for us. Right? You see, it's easy and even a joy for a godly wife to submit to her husband who loves her sacrificially. Right? We submit to Christ with confidence. We submit to Christ according to the teaching of Scripture. Therefore, the church's submission to Christ is always a gracious blessing for our lives, and the same should be true in a Christian marriage. And when a husband is loving his wife, then the wife should find it a joy to be able to submit to him and respect him. When a husband is loving his wife, then a wife should find it, have great confidence in her husband's leadership and care for her. When a husband's loving his wife well, he's going to be leading and guiding her in the marriage and the family and the home with, according to Scripture. Which, by the way, those of you who are single and you're thinking about a prospective spouse, you need to be thinking about women. You should be thinking, do I have confidence that this man will love me and care for me and provide for me like this? Can I have confidence and his ability to lead me and love me well? Do I have reason to believe that he would lead me according to Scripture? 
But remember, we cannot rightly understand either the nature of marriage or how to conduct ourselves in marriage apart from Christ and Christ's likeness. So when you look at verse 24, and you see that it says, wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This means there's no area within marriage that's not under the husband's burden of leadership. There's nothing that's not under his burden of responsibility. This means that a godly wife will never go through life with the mindset that I will submit to him in some things, but not everything. I'll go, there are some areas where I don't care what he thinks. I don't care what he desires because I'm going to do what I want regarding finances or raising our kids or my own career goals. Now, again, it doesn't mean you should not or cannot have differing opinions from your husband, but the call of Scripture is to use your opinions, your input, your instincts, your wisdom, your experience to try to influence and guide your husband to the best decision and the best outcomes for your family as you work together in a godly, honoring, and respectful way. So what does that mean practically? A wife should trust and respect her husband's leadership. You know, no husband is perfectly trustworthy. Not one of us is. But God is. And God's established the order of roles in marriage. Therefore, when a Christian wife is trusting her Christian husband's leadership, she's also trusting God who's at work in his life. So wives, do you explicitly tell your husband that you believe in him? There's perhaps no more powerful attitude that a wife can have towards her husband than that of respect. How do you speak to your husband? Privately or publicly, in front of your kids? How do you speak about your husband to others? See, respect is shown not just with words, but also with actions and with the attitude that flows from the heart. A wife should seek to be your husband's complement. A wife is not supposed to be merely a passive, um, compliant doormat. She's her husband's suitable helper. He needs her, and she needs to use her strengths to support his weaknesses. However, a wife should never, ever compete with her husband. Ladies, hear me on this. Most of the men in this room will passively let go and they'll withdraw if you compete with them. Most of them won't compete with you. So rather than compete with him or try to control him, be committed to come alongside him, to be his suitable helper, to help him in an honoring and respectful way. So wives, if you're guilty of competing with your husband instead of complimenting him as a suitable helper, then know there's grace for you. There's grace for you. There's grace for husbands. There's grace for wives. Don't lose hope. Confess your sin. Turn away from it. Walk in grace and pray for the Spirit's enabling power as you go forward. Also, a wife should encourage her husband by communicating how much she appreciates and respects even his imperfect attempts at servant leadership. He needs encouragement. He needs you in his corner. He needs you as his cheerleader. You have no idea how meaningful it is for him to hear you say, I'm proud of you. I trust you. I have confidence in you. You have led us well. For most men, their deepest fear is failure and their deepest need is the confidence to know that they can succeed. And wives have the unique ability to speak words of encouragement and confidence into their husbands' lives. So even when, not if, but when, your husband makes mistakes, he needs encouragement even for the ways he's trying to lead, that he's taking initiative. Now, we're not finished with this passage on marriage. We've just begun to look at it. 
But we see in verse 22, the straightforward instruction, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. But we know we're to never separate that from what we read in verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Right, the wife's call to submission to her husband can never be, must never be, separated from the call for the husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. And then in verse 32 there is, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. See, this reminds us that the ultimate purpose in marriage is the glory of Christ. You know, everything in this passage points us to Christ. Each and every verse, 22, 23, 24, mentions Christ. And so as I said at the beginning of the sermon, you cannot rightly understand either the nature of marriage or how to conduct yourself in it apart from Christ, apart from Christ's likeness. Wives should submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Husbands should love, nourish, and cherish their wives. Why? Because what God first created in the garden was designed that way to speak about and show forth the riches of the Christ who was to come and who has now come as the head of his body, the church. Let me end with this. How does a husband love and serve an imperfect wife? Well, he doesn't wait for her to become submissive first. Well, why not? Because that's not how Jesus loves the church. That Jesus initiates perfect servant leadership for an imperfect church. And guess what? When husbands graciously and lovingly lead their imperfect wives with love and care and responsibility and servant leadership, sometimes the wives begin to respond as respectful and submissive, suitable helpers. Well, how does a wife joyfully submit to, trust, and respect the leadership of an imperfect husband? Well, because she knows that God has graciously arranged the roles in marriage and God is always perfectly trustworthy, so she can trust the God who is trustworthy while that same God is at work within her imperfect husband. She doesn't insist on a perfect husband first. And guess what? When wives graciously serve and follow their husband's imperfect leadership with joy and respect and encouragement, Sometimes the husbands begin to embrace their roles as servant leaders, and they step up. So friends, do not lose hope. The biggest problem in your marriage and in my marriage is sin. But do not forget where we are in redemptive history. Christ has come, he's taken on flesh, he's lived, he's bled, he's died, he's rose from the grave, he's ascended to God's right hand, he's poured out the Holy Spirit to defeat sin to save us, and to transform us. So for those who know Christ, we are to never lose hope. We're never without hope. Marriages really can get better, both the bad marriages and even the good ones. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this, this passage of Scripture. We confess it's not easy. It is challenging. It reproves us. It corrects us. It challenges us. But, Father, we're thankful for the hope. The hope that because the biggest problem in our marriage is sin, and we have Christ who has come, who has defeated Satan's sin and death itself. Let us never lose hope. Help us to believe and to trust that, that our marriage, 
really can get better. No matter how bad we think it is, no matter how good we think it is. Lord, move and work in our hearts, in our homes. We want to be faithful to you. Lord, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.